Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask for your presence to be here. Speak, O Lord. Speak to each of us. Lord, whatever condition that people are in spiritually and morally right now, God, I pray that you speak to them. Lord, those that know you, we ask that you would draw us near, and those who do not know you, or those who are backslid, God, that you would call them home. And that this morning they'd be willing to run home to you. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would draw us, that you bring us near to yourself. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, some of the truths in Scripture that are most profound are the most simple. And we're actually going to look at something very simple that is very profound. And we're going to see how it applies uh, to our lives. And it is also very radical. And so I hope I'm able to just show how radical this is as I begin to unfold uh, this truth. Biblical Christianity is radical for a reason. Why? Because the founder is radical. Okay? Jesus is. And uh, I'm not going to be speaking on the radical Jesus that, uh, you, where I wrote a book on that. Um, that's not my object. But it is the reality of who He is that this God broke into our world, took upon flesh and blood, and everything about that is absolutely radical. And if I went by point by point, it's just the reality of it. And so this kingdom that He calls us into is radical. So we are to live by... Uh, his kingdom according to the rules and laws of His kingdom. And that kingdom is radical because it's defined by Jesus. But guess what? It's normal according to Jesus. Now, for all of mankind, it's, it, it's, it's radical because we're so subnormal. We're so low so that we think that it's, wow, that's really crazy stuff. But we were created for a purpose and we are so broken that we are not fulfilling that purpose. And so Calvary is all about uh, bringing that healing balm of His blood to us to transform us and to make us more like Christ. And so the kingdom of God is based on and defined by Christ, who He is, and by the Word of God. And it is not based, cannot be based, will never be based or defined by the world. When the church is defined by the world, it is no longer the church, not the true church. It may be the visible church. They may have a beautiful cathedral with you know wonderful stained glass windows and all kinds of you know uh, wealthy appointments to it all. But it's not the church. If 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 the Holy Spirit is not there because He is holy and He's going to be in a holy place, if He's not there, that means that the people aren't in right fellowship with Him. And so the kingdom of God is based and defined by Jesus. And turn with me to Matthew chapter six. We're going to look at one simple little verse. And this is part of what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And uh, the Lord's Prayer was never given to us to pray verbatim. It's not why He gave it. Jesus didn't give it to us to have this vain repetition that we say over and over and over again that ultimately comes totally, completely meaningless. And then people quote it over and over again, never pay attention to what it says, never lives what it says, and becomes more guilty as they quote it every single time without knowing what they're even saying. And so it wasn't given to us to pray verbatim. It was an outline of prayer. Jesus was saying, this is what prayer consists of. Okay? And this is one of the things, one of the dynamics in what we're to pray about. And so this should become an active part of every believer's prayer life in one way or the other. And uh, if you're not a believer, if you're not a true follower of Jesus, then it needs to become, needs to become one. Verse 10, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be done on earth, to be done in my life, to be done in your life as it is in heaven? Because we have to make this very personal. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to become a reality to me, for me to be living in that kingdom, and what does it look like? How is it manifested? How is it revealed? And so, this is really what we're going to look at. But 
To do this, I'm going to do what may seem strange, but it's not. It's going to make a lot of sense as I think you begin to understand when I unfold this. So, what is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of hell? So I want to make a contrast between God and Satan. I want us to understand the reality of this. I want to make it as graphic as I can for a few minutes so that we understand the difference between God and Satan, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of hell. Because this reality gets so blurred in the minds of Christians and it is totally obscured, not even understood among those who are not Christians. And so I want to make this really clear. The first thing is, is God is the eternal, timeless Creator. He has no beginning and has no end. And if you try and figure that out, you're going to go insane. Okay, you just can't. I mean, no beginning, no end, self-existent. Everything in our life, everything in our existence, there's beginning and end. And so God breaks in our world and says, I'm the self-existent one, and uh, you're never going to figure that out. And you try to figure it out, and you, you refuse to believe in God because you can't figure that out, then what are you wanting? A man-made God that will fit in your little box that you can figure out. But anything that is God, the true and living God, is going to be so big, so massive, He'll not fit in anybody's box. There is no box. He will not allow Himself to be confined. He is infinitely beyond everything. And so this God is the eternal Creator who is timeless. What about Satan? He is a created being. Only God is the timeless, uncreated Creator. Satan is a, was an angel. He was created. He had a beginning. He will now go on throughout eternity. We are in that sense like the angels, whether demons or angels. They had a beginning. God created them. We have a beginning. We will live forever, either, either in heaven or hell. We are eternal beings now. Not like God is. God will always be unique. He's the only one who has always been and has no beginning and end. But the devil is a created being. We've got to understand this reality because we are dealing with a created being who is the enemy of our souls. We are not dealing with the almighty creator. Very, very, very different. There is no ability to compare the two because God is infinitely above the devil and all the demon hordes. God is omnipotent, which means that He is all-powerful, which means that He is without limit in His power, that whatever He wants to do, He is able to do, and He will do it because it is within His power to do it. And, we, and He will only do what is within His character. So God will never do that which is evil. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. He only does what is good because that's who He is. So His, his omnipotent power is only operating for that which is good, and that which is true, and that which is right. He lacks nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. All power He has. And He will accomplish whatever His good, pleasing, and perfect will is. It will be accomplished. When He says He'll do something, it will be done. We may not see it in our life, he will do what He said He'll do. And He has the ability to bring it to pass. Nobody can stop Him. Not the hordes of hell. Nobody can stop Him from doing what He wills. His throne is not in jeopardy. Hell can raise itself up and it can't even put a chip upon that throne. Cannot move God. He is immovable because He is absolute in power. What about the devil, though? He is a limited being in every dimension of his being. He is limited in power. I have no way of saying how powerful a devil is or an angel. Okay, we have no idea. We get some, some pictures in Scripture. You know, one angel goes and wipes out a, an, an army of a couple hundred thousand people. I mean, I don't know what kind of power they have. They have a lot more power. They're, they're different than us. We do not become angels. Angels are a whole different being. And He's given them a particular wisdom, and He's given them a particular power, and they can operate in that, but they are all restrained, whether good angels or devils. They are restrained by an all-powerful God that will not let them go beyond what He has said that they can do. 
But he's limited. The devil is limited, just like we are limited. He has given us certain powers, certain things to do, creative ability and that. We can only go so far with it. We have limits, and we cannot go any further. That is true with every angelic being, good or bad. They are limited. The devil is not all-powerful, not even close. God is omnipresent, which means He's everywhere at once, in every time. He's everywhere. There's no place you can go where He is not. There's no time you can go to that He is not there, that He's not there in the present now. Always everywhere present and the same everywhere because you cannot have one place where God is more and another place where He is less. He is the fullness of who He is, and He is everywhere at one time the same. Now, it's a different thing of His manifest presence, so I'm not going to get into that. But here you have the reality of a God who is everywhere. There's no place you can get away from Him. There's no place you can go from Him. What about the devil? He's like you and I. can only be in one place at one time. I mean, you understand that? that the devil is limited. He's a limited being. Not just that he's limited, but God has put boundaries and says you cannot go any further. And so he will not let the devil destroy mankind, though he'd love to do it because he would love to hurt the apple of God's eye and destroy all of mankind. But God will not let that because the all-powerful God has put limits upon this itty-bitty little demon. You understand? I'm not trying to diminish the reality of His power because it's greater than our power, but He is totally, completely restrained. God is omniscient. He knows everything that there is to know and there's no end to all that He knows. And I guarantee you, nobody can figure that one out. It's hard enough to say, much less really try to comprehend what does it mean for God to know everything. And how does that work? And we can try and, and philosophically try and figure this out and everything else, we're going to fail. Because we just don't understand how He can know everything that there is to know. And yet there's no end to it. So there is no place in all of God's creation, whether material or spiritual, that God does not know what's going on by being there and by knowing so he is, it's more than just being there. He knows what's in the heart and mind of every person and every angel. Any rational being, he knows what's going on inside of them. What about the devil? And all the demon horde, they are limited in knowledge. They only have a capacity, and they can go to that particular capacity. Whatever that capacity is, I can't tell you. We deal with some smart devils. I don't want to say the devils are dumb. You know, we can try and refer to them as stupid beings, but they're not stupid. I mean, we're dealing with smart devils that have learned how over, over all this time that man has existed, the 6,000 years we've been on this planet, that they have learned mankind. They've learned how to tempt. They are good at what they do. They are effective at what they do because they know how men and women think and act and they know how to go after those things and how to stir in us these evil desires. But yet the devil and the demon whores are limited in knowledge. God thwarts them constantly because of that. If the devil, we're told that if the devil knew what would happen at Calvary, he wouldn't have had Jesus crucified. He did not know that knowledge was kept from him, even when Jesus was talking about it to his apostles and disciples. That knowledge, for whatever reason, whatever way, could not penetrate the minds of, of Satan or the demon horse. They were ignorant. Absolutely ignorant. They thought, okay, this world's going to be ours. All we got to do is kill the Son. And they failed to understand that in crucifying Christ, He became our sin offering. And by becoming our sin offering, Satan suffered the, the, a blow to his power, to his, his kingdom in a horrendous way. And so, if he would have known, he wouldn't have done it. Now let's make it a little more personal, okay? God is good and kind. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, peace, 
and joy. You see, God is good. That's all He can be is good. He is not evil. He is not cruel. God is good, and He does good to mankind. Even those who hate Him, He does good. Because guess what? Any of you that are here that are not a true follower of Jesus, He has been so good to you to give you another day to live so that you don't have to spend eternity in hell. You may look at your life and you may see your life of misery and sorrow and pain, but don't blame God for what you have created of your own life. Your own consequences. What you have done, you have done. And don't blame God because you've suffered and you're miserable and all these bad things have happened. You can go through all these things in life and you can blame God for it, but that's a big mistake because you failed to understand who acted out every sin that you have committed and every sin that was committed against you. And it wasn't God. It was the choice of people. God is good. You know what happens when you enter into His kingdom? You begin to taste and know that good God. You begin to taste of His peace. You begin to taste of His kindness. You begin to experience the wonder of, his, of who this God is. And, and our minds may be filled and with so much junk that keeps us from fully understanding it, but yet we begin to taste of it. And as we press deeper into that kingdom, what do we see? We see more and more of who He is because He does not change. This God does not change. He is good now. He has always been good. He will always be good. He can't change. So I can go deeper and deeper into this relation with Christ and only know Him more and more as a God that is good, kind, loving, merciful, gentle, and all the dynamics of what He reveals Himself as in Scripture. But what is the kingdom of hell? What is the kingdom of Satan? It's an evil, cruel, vicious kingdom that's about pain, suffering, misery, death, sorrow, agony. Add word after word after word upon it because that's what it is. It's nothing but, but misery and pain and damnation because devils can only give what devils have. And that's death. And that's separation from God. That's what they are trying to give every human being on this planet. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what He's trying to give you. That's what He's trying to keep you in. He doesn't want you coming to the kingdom of God because He wants to take you right down to the depths of hell. Because all He has, the only intention He has, is to bring ruin to you. It's the only intention. That's what He wants to do. And yet, what do people do all the time? They hop in bed with the devil and they think, oh man, this is going to be a great time. You fail to understand all he's bringing is misery, agony, sorrow, pain, because that's all he can do, because that's all he is. The relationship that God has with his rational beings, men and angels, especially looking at men, just let's look at, at men and women here. It's a relationship of surrender, intimacy, and adoption. So when I think of my own life as a young man struggling on drugs during the hippie movement that eventually was saved in the Jesus movement, the day He broke into my world, the day He brought me to the place of repentance, the day He went and, and, and pulled me out of this, this horrible pit that I was in, He didn't just save me. He went and adopted me. He made me a son absolutely astounding that this God would take somebody who was a rebel against Him, who lived out rebellion, only wanted rebellion, and that He'd break into our life to bring us to the place of adoption. To me, that's, I can't get my mind around that. That is, that is love beyond anything I can comprehend. But what does Satan want? He has a kingdom of pain, death, and suffering. That's all he wants to bring to you. That's it. It's a place of misery. His relationship that he has with every person that's in his kingdom is a, a relationship of bondage through fear, pride, selfishness, greed, self-destruction, and all the horrible things that man can do to themselves and do to one another. That's all hell has to offer. That's it. If you're in the kingdom of hell right now, this is what you have to look forward to. Year after year, more pain, more suffering, more sorrow, more agony than an eternity of separation from God. And yet the whole time, there is Jesus. There is Jesus reaching out His arms to you, reaching out, calling you, saying, flee, flee to me, flee to me. I am a place of refuge. I have an answer for you. I can rescue you. And how foolish it is to keep saying, no, no, no. No. 
God is the author of truth. That's all that can come out of Him is truth. There's never been a lie, never will be a lie, never can be a lie. Truth, absolute truth. Everything He tells us is the truth. You want to know the truth, don't look to the world because it's going to be the kingdom of hell that gives lies. That's all it is. You see, the kingdom of hell is a kingdom of lies. It's built upon lies. It advances lies. When it uses truth, it uses enough truth to deceive people, but it has enough lie in it to damn them to hell. That's how it works. It's just so, it's so insidious to use enough truth to deceive people to think it's right, but then have enough lie in it to damn them to hell that they don't enter the relationship with Christ. But yet the whole time, there's God speaking truth, speaking truth. And you know, if I were to ask you, if I had a car for sale, and it was, uh, it was a rust bucket, looked okay on the outside, and it had, you know, half a million miles on that engine, and I went and uh, changed back the speedometer and said it was 50,000, and uh, you drive away after buying it, uh, you'd be kind of angry at me when you found out I was lying, right? None of us want to be lied to. None of us. We all hate it when people lie to us. And yet, the greatest lie that people, they just devour, they eat, they consume it, is the lie that they do not have to come to Christ, that they do not have to be saved, that they are good enough. Lie after lie that they believe to keep them in the lie so that they are forever under the domain of hell. You see, the kingdom of God the Lord God is absolute victor. He cannot lose. He cannot be defeated. He cannot be conquered. He cannot be moved. You understand? He is absolute victor. And all those who are in His kingdom will walk in His victory if they are living a surrendered life. If you're living defeated... There's something wrong then with your Christianity. You need to understand what's going on. Either you're not in the kingdom or you have some really distorted ideas about the kingdom because this God is absolutely victory, victorious and He gives victory to those who will come and yield to Him, surrender to Him. He gives victory. But yet, what is it with the kingdom of hell? Absolute defeat. Absolutely People will be defeated when they breathe their last and they stand before God and He has to say, Depart from me. I never knew you. You serve the devil your whole life. You serve the selfishness of your sin and your pride. Depart from me. Defeat forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Because they refuse to bow their will to the one who is absolute victor. You see, the victory that Christians have is not the victory that comes through themselves. It's the victory that comes through a victorious God. It's what He offers His children. It's what He offers. Now let's look at this thought here in verse 10 of chapter 6. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We can make it more personal. Let your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. True Christians, I want you to understand this, this is so serious. True Christians refuse to live by the devil's standards. Refuse to bow their knee to the devil. Refuse to be part of that devilish kingdom. Refuse to let the influence of that kingdom into their life, into their homes. This is serious because all kinds of Christians, they are letting the kingdom of hell into their homes in a host of different ways, whether it's through TV or social media or whatever. All these avenues of hell coming right into it. And they fail to understand what they've opened themselves up to because they think it's innocent. But the devil is never innocent. And what he does is always with an agenda to kill, steal, and destroy. You see, there's war that's going on right now between Christ's followers and the hordes of hell. This war is real because we can't see the blood on the ground. We can't see the, 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 the weapons of war because we can't see it with our natural eyes. It doesn't mean that war isn't going on. It's a real warfare. And it's out for territory. You see, wars, that's what they want. They want territory, right? 
One nation rises up against another nation. What reason? They want territory. Whether it is financial, whether it is, is land, whether it's oil, whatever. They want territory. They want something out of that. And what is the devil wanting out of you? Why is it that he's been fighting against your soul from ever since you came into this world? Why is it that you are still in the kingdom of hell and you stay in the kingdom of hell because the devil doesn't want you to leave? He wants to take you down to hell. And when you become a follower of Christ, guess what? You're going to have a battle because hell is now going to be against you. Not just that, that once he had you, now you're going to be against him. And there's going to be a battle that's there. We should not be shocked as Christians that we have to deal with temptations and struggles and problems. If you stand up to say, devil, I'm no longer yours, I'm no longer going to bow to you, I'm no longer going to serve you, I'm no longer going to let you have a say over my life, then you better expect that there's going to be war. Don't be shocked. But you know, a lot of times Christians are shocked. I just want a happy life. Why aren't I happy? Well, because you've got a devil that's raging mad at you. And you think he's just going to say, okay, well, I'll lighten up a little bit on you now. Uh-uh. I mean, we live in a fantasy world with so much of this instead of understanding the battle that we are really in. We need to be a people that refuse, refuse to be a slave to Satan anymore. Refuse to give him territory of your mind, of your emotions, of your sex drive or whatever. Refuse to give him territory. You will not have this anymore, devil. You've had this so long in my life. You will not have this. You see, that's, we have to have that, that righteous standing by the grace of God that says, I will do what I am called to do by God, knowing that my God is good, kind, loving, and He's wanting me to be with Him forever and ever. And I know the devil that's trying to bring me down has nothing but pain and misery and sorrow. True Christians no longer bow their knee to Satan. I mean, can you imagine this? Here you go and you swear fealty. Swear loyalty to, to Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go, except I'm going to bow my knee to Satan here once in a while. I mean, doesn't what's wrong with that picture? You understand? That's what so many Christians do. I'm just going to bow to the devil for a little bit here. It's in this area, it's not that big a deal. Just a little bit here. And you think that devil's going to leave you there? You don't think he's going to put some claws in you and try and draw, drag you down and drag everybody down that's associated with you? We fail to understand the enemy that we are dealing with. And so what happens? So many people are subject to the devil and wondering why they can't overcome. And so we need to have a humble, yet militant refusal to be like the world. It's not about arrogance. We give over to arrogance and we're just one, in, one, of, the, one of the traps. But there needs to be this humble aspect. Say, I refuse I refuse to bow anymore. I refuse to give this over in my life. I refuse. He's done nothing but pain and misery. He's given me nothing but sorrow. And you think that you're going to give yourself over again to a particular area of sin in your life and it's not going to be like it's been every other time before? What has produced sorrow in the past will produce sorrow again because that's what sin does. Sin will never be anything other than what it is. It will bring pain and misery and sorrow to everybody who partakes of it, whether they call themselves Christian or not. It is the nature of it. And you cannot make the nature of sin any different than what it is. You cannot live between two worlds. You cannot. You've got to make that choice. What kingdom are you going to live in? What king are you going to bow to? You're going to bow to the King of Kings, the Almighty God, or are you going to bow to this to this usurper, this this devil that that has no right to rule over anybody? And you're going to bow to him that he has vowed for your eternal damnation and destruction. You're going to give over to him. You're going to let him have a say in your life. As Christians, we need to finally say enough, enough. This one author made this powerful little point. He says, how do you appease an enemy who will not be appeased by anything less than your death? How do you say, okay, hey, devil, come in. Why don't you sit down and eat some popcorn with me as we watch a movie together? And you fail to understand behind his back is a dagger, and he's waiting for the right opportunity to sink it right in your heart. Because that's all he has. 
That's all He has for you is death, destruction. But you think, well, it's just a little issue, not that big a deal. And you're, you know, you're, you're trying to fellowship with the one who wants to kill you. Scary stuff, because we don't see the reality. This is why we need discernment in these last days. We need discernment. We need to understand what the truth is, not be ignorant. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, it says, No wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now, I don't watch horror flicks. I've not watched a horror flick since I've been a, a Christian. Will not. But you know what they always do? Don't they just make the devil really, really ugly? I mean, isn't that what it is? Don't people understand the ploy here? When he's actually coming as an angel of light, making himself all beautiful. And so we're expecting this ugly, hideous devil, which is what he is, but he puts himself out as sweet. And, oh, I've got, I'm thinking of the best for you. you just, you're lonely now, and you just need a little special love. And the whole time, he's just looking to destroy you. Let your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. How do they live in heaven? Think about that. How do they live in heaven? Every angelic being and every redeemed saint in heaven right now, right this very moment, are in fellowship with God beyond anything you and I can even comprehend. Now, angels have a different relationship with God. I can't tell you what it is. They are different, okay? They're a different creature. They have a different relationship with them. You know, I'm not even going to try to, to, to pretend I understand what that is. But we are going to have a relationship with God that's different. Angels are not adopted. You understand? They're not adopted. We are being adopted. Angels are not called co-heirs with Christ. Those who become sons and daughters of God are called co-heirs with Christ. I don't know what that means, but I'll tell you what, it has to be pretty awesome. What He's offering us is absolutely astounding. For me to go, says, God, I want your kingdom in my life right now, it is in heaven. It's saying, God, I want, I want to know you like they know you in heaven. I want to see you like, I've, like they see you in heaven, God. Open my understanding. Make me in awe of you like they are in heaven. You see, we have such a tame Christianity and such a small view of God that we fail to understand what He's really calling us to, what He's really wanting of our lives. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Philippians 3.10 where Paul went and says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. That's what made that man the man of God that he was, that God could use him to turn the known world at that time upside down. Because he had that burning passion, I want to know Christ. And if I could put it in the way that, it, that Jesus said it in this, in this uh, outline of prayer, in essence he was saying, I want to know Christ as they know you in heaven. That's how I want to know you. That's how I want to know you. And I want, I want us to think about something here. God is good, right? Every promise He gives us is good. Do you know what that means? He's offering us something beyond where we're at then. He's not offering us something that, well, I'm going to tell you this is what it is, but I'm not going to let you get there. He's offering us. He's inviting us. Will we ever arrive to that place, what we'll have in heaven? No, but it should be the pursuit of it. We're going deeper and deeper with greater knowledge and understanding of the wonder of this God and the wonder of His love and how He has called us to Himself. That your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Just think of every angel in heaven, every redeemed saint, every single one of them, is perfectly surrendered. No rebellion. No rebellion there. You know, so if Jesus says, uh, Angel Joe, I want you to do this. Yes, sir! <laughs> it's the joy of his heart. It's not like he's walking around moping, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, God. Can you ask somebody else? You know, it's just not how it works. You know, surrender. It's joy. There's, and it is joy in this life. 
Christians don't understand. You know where so much of our, our struggles come as Christians? Because we're not surrendered. It's our own will. We're resisting what God's will is that is good and right for us and, and offers the greatest joy. We fight against it when we go and complain. says, God, why aren't I happy? Why am I so miserable? Why is everything going wrong? Well, because we haven't learned this thing called reckless abandonment. And uh, that's not my term. That's from Oswald Chambers. And I've been in the faith 48 years. 48 years. And it was probably 47 years ago that I read that out of his devotional, My Utmost for This Highest. And ever since I read that, man, I took that as my own. Going, what a phenomenal statement. Reckless abandonment. What is reckless abandonment? It's what Angel Joe does when God says, Joe, do this. Yes! No argument, no debate. I don't know if that's really good. Is that the right thing, God? You sure you know what you're talking about? You know, it's just, he said it. You obey. When he says stop, what do you do? You stop. When he says stop practicing sin, what do you do? You cry out for the grace of God to stop practicing sin. You don't have to go say, well, God, should I really stop? No, you obey. And you obey as quickly as as quickly as possible. Why? Because you have come to understand that God is good and everything about Him is good. His kingdom is good. What He invites us into is good. One author made this simple yet powerful point. He said, God really starts to use men and women when their lives are no longer their own, but His. That's where God starts using people. He doesn't need your gifts and talents. He'll use them if you offer them to Him. If you surrender them to Him, He'll use them. But He doesn't need them. He is offering us the opportunity to take what He has given us, which we have received from Him, to take and return it to Him and give it to Him. He's offering us the privilege to do that. But it comes as a gift, an opportunity. You want to be used of God? Learn some reckless abandonment. You know, the more you surrender, the deeper your surrender is, the greater joy you're going to have because all that rebellion that causes so many nightmares is going to be removed. And in that place of surrender, there will be this obedience that starts rising up. This obedience. And you'll find joy in that obedience. Everyone in heaven... His will being done here on earth. Everyone in heaven is holy. Every single one is holy. It's not a burden for them to be holy. It's not that they're in some place up in heaven, some corner, you know, wondering, oh, should I be holy? I don't know if I want to be holy. They have found holiness, the holiness of God to be so beautiful. And nobody is holy but God. For any creature... To be in the presence of an infinitely holy God, God must impart to them His holiness. So the holiness He offers us is the holiness that comes from Him to us so that we can fellowship with Him. He gives us what we need. He calls us to fellowship with Him. He calls us to know Him. He calls us into this deeper relationship. And then He gives us His holiness So that we can do it. Because without that, we can't do it. There's no ability for us to be holy without the grace of God helping us to be holy. We must have grace. We must have that help. And He will offer us, He offers us all the grace necessary to live that out. And so every angel, every redeemed saint in heaven, they are living holy. You know, it should be the passion of our life saying, God, help me to live as holy as they live. I'm going, to have a, I'm going to have a fight every day of my life to try and be holy. Okay? It's not that, that I'm going to reach this place where there's going to be no more struggle. But what will happen is in this pursuit, when the struggles come, it will just make us press in. God, I've got to overcome this in my life. I've got to overcome this thing rather than just giving in. You understand what I'm talking about? When you give in, what have you given into? You've gone to an altar of the devil and you bowed to that and you gave yourself over to it. And you thought, that's just a little, it's just a little problem of life. No, it's not. Understand what that really is. Take a look at what it is. You bowed at an altar to Satan. You gave over to the lust of the flesh. And what does it produce in your life? Death. That's all it can. 
And so it should be the passion of our life. God, I want to be holy because I want to fellowship with You. I want to know You. I want to walk near to You, God. I want to taste Your goodness, Your kindness, Your love, Your mercy. I want to know it in abundance, God. Rather than barely getting by. Barely getting by. We are told so clearly in so many places, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you understand that's a non-negotiable aspect for you to enter heaven? You cannot enter heaven unholy. You cannot. But what can God do? He can take unholy people and make them holy. That's what He does. And He knows how to do it. He knows how to do it well. He knows how to work His holiness into a life where He makes a person holy. Then He begins to teach them how to live out practical holiness on a daily basis. That it becomes the passion of their life. When they once loved sin and evil and all this junk that brought so much pain and sorrow, now they begin loving the righteousness of God and the goodness and the holiness of God. And they want that in their life because now they're tasting the wonder of what it is to be in fellowship with God. Let me just be honest here. True Christians will stop practicing sin. You cannot be a a Christian in the practice of sin. You can't. It's not a possibility. If you don't believe what I'm saying, then take time this afternoon after the fellowship and study 1 John. And if you're not convinced, then give me a call and I'll be glad to go over the Word with you, 1 John with you, and show you again and again where John says, those who practice sin do not know Him. Paul said it this way. <laughs> and, you know, I think Paul is just, he would have been one awesome guy to know. I, he'd be pretty disturbing because you know, he was in your face. You know, he didn't play around. So here's what he told the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 34. Come back to your senses and stop sinning. That's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, it's not like, would you pretty please kind of sort of just stop it? He says, stop it. Stop it now. Come back to your senses. You're acting insane in the practice of sin. You're bowing at Satan's altar, in essence, as you give yourself over to sin. Stop it. I think that's some pretty good preaching right there. Stop it. You know, he can do a whole lot when we finally come to the place and understand what sin is, who Satan is. We finally say, I don't want any more of that in my life. I don't want him to have a say over me. I don't want that in my life. When I was a, a boy, I can't remember how many times, but I would go to Tiger Stadium, you know, to watch the Detroit Tigers. And uh, you can buy the souvenirs there, these little bats, these little ball bats. And so, you know, I probably had a few different ones of them. And, you know, they look like the big wooden ones, but they're just small. Well, imagine, you know, you're driving down the road here and you see this guy with one of those little bats. He's beating himself. Boom. Boom. You go, man, that guy's nuts. So you pull over and you go, you know, you kind of walk up because you don't want to start hitting you. You say, guy, you know, stop that. You're, look at all the bruises on you. Oh, come on. I got a bag of them here. I'll sell you one. Do you want one? Here, man, this is so good. I'll teach you how to do it. Just beat yourself like this. You're beating your balls. (laughs) Awesome. And you're just going, this guy's nuts, man. Beating himself. But that's what sin is. You understand? That's what sin is. Sin is self-abuse. It is you beating yourself with a ball bat. And you're going, wow, this is awesome. Oh, this feels so good. And the wells are rising up and the blood is oozing out because you've given yourself over to it for so long and you think that it is giving you pleasure. But it's not. Never has. Sin can't produce that. It may give a thrill to the flesh for a little bit until the addiction of sin comes. But it will always produce what it is. But then you watch the guy as he's beating himself, and all of a sudden he looks, oh, mother, mother, what are you doing? He goes and jumps on her and starts beating her. You know, what are you going to do, man? You're going to think, this guy is nuts. He's beating himself now. He's beating his mama. But what does sin do? Sin doesn't just abuse ourselves. In our self-abuse of sin, we abuse everyone in our life. We hurt everyone. And just imagine, you look a little further, and there is Jesus walking along. And then he gets off beating on his mom and jumps on Jesus and starts beating on him. 
Kind of graphic, huh? Meant to be. Because we think so small of sin. We don't see what it really is. We don't see the self-abuse. We don't see the abuse that we bring upon those we claim to love. And we don't see how we go and nail into the hands and feet of Jesus those nails new and afresh. It's the reality of what it is. Paul told us, and I'm not going to quote it because I think Pastor Jeff has recently quoted it, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10, through 10, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he goes through a big list of all these sins. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You cannot practice sin and enter, enter heaven. You cannot. What's he calling us to? To think like those who are in heaven. Right? So what did Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17? So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility or worthlessness of their thinking. So Paul is saying, stop thinking like the world. You act like the world because you think like the world. And as long as you think like the world, you're going to act like the world. If you're going to walk like a Christian, you have to begin to think like what a Christian thinks. Your worldview has to have a radical change, a 180 turnaround, where you begin to think differently. But what happens when you start thinking differently? The world is going to look at you and say, you're pretty crazy, aren't you? Because they would think that anybody that would think like Jesus must not be thinking right. But yet, what happens when we begin to think like Jesus a little bit more? A little bit more like those who think in heaven. We start coming more and more to sanity. We start coming out of our insanity into saneness. That's what He's offering us. See, our heart and minds are battlefields. Every one of us here, Christian and non-Christian, it's a battlefield. Guaranteed, the devil is working in some of your minds right now with this message, trying to have you silence the very words that are being spoken. Silence the voice of the Holy Spirit that's calling you to come to a place to run home to Him. Trying to silence the voice as well. It's not really like that preacher saying, well, yes it is, and I'm not even doing a good job speaking it. It's worse. The kingdom of hell is worse than I can even describe And the mercy of God is coming to you. The love of God is coming to you. Says, child, flee. Flee into my arms. I have an answer for your pain, your suffering. I have an answering answer to your sin-sick soul. I have a remedy. I have a remedy. And how many of you will be wise enough this morning to run home to Jesus? You see, everyone in heaven, everyone in heaven is faithful. Right? Every redeemed saint is faithful. They're all faithful. We need to be saying, God, let your will be done in my life here on earth as it is in heaven. Help me to be faithful like they are faithful. Help me to walk true and, and faithful to you. That, is, that thought in our culture today is, is, is almost a cuss word. Because the idea of lying, they've taken polls out there. I don't remember what the statistics are, but it's unbelievable the amount of people that, that lie and don't see much wrong with it. That yet we're called to a place to live in the truth. To live in the place that we, that we know the truth, we love the truth, and we become faithful to the truth. And we become faithful to the God of truth. That we walk consistent before Him. Of course, there's only one that we can trust all the time, every time. And that is God, right? He's the only one who is perfectly, infinitely faithful. But you know what? We should become more and more like Him. That our lives are more and more trustworthy more and more faithful. That we become examples of what is to be followers of Jesus. That people can begin to look at us and see the reality of what that is. You are not like what you once were. Or maybe they don't know what you once were, but they say, you're not like all these other people I know because they're seeing something so different and unique in your life because you're walking near to Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit is being born in your life more and more and more. The final point and there's so many other ways I could express this. Let me go back to Angel Joe. Can you imagine God going to Angel Joe? 
and telling him to do something, and he had that bad attitude, that lackadaisical attitude to, I don't know, I got other things I want to do. You know, I got, you know, I want to do some gaming or whatever. And, and I thank God there's no, none of that there. But um, <laughs> you see, everyone in heaven has holy zeal. Holy zeal. Do we realize, church, that zeal is part of what makes us beautiful to God? That passion when He says, stop this, we stop it. When He says, go, we go. When He says, reach out to a perishing world, there's no argument. If we were to tell you to say, sell everything and, and go to Lumbumbashi, you would sell everything and go to Lumbumbashi. You understand? I mean, this is what He calls us to, this, this zeal, this love of God. I'm not talking about some foolish thing that we don't ever take counsel or anything else. There's a right, right way to do it, and I'm not trying to give all the scenarios of it. But Jesus made this statement in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. He says, I have come to bring fire on the earth. Oh, I wish it were already kindled. Some have spoken of that as possibly having to refer to persecution. And I think it does. But I think it also refers to the church. I've come to bring a fire in people, something to burn inside of them. I've not called the people to be lukewarm and lackadaisical in their faith. I've called people to have a passion for me and to live passionately in pursuit of me. I challenge you to sit down and look at this verse and try and process it even more. Take it further, because there's so many other ways it can be expressed. But I want to close with this. We need to become a people that refuse to be a slave of Satan ever again. Some of you right now, you are on your way to hell. You are serving the devil. You may say, I've never bowed down and worshipped the devil. You have become a puppet of his because you are in the practice of sin. You are in rebellion against your God and you are being used by him. And the wonder of wonders is that this God is coming to you, offering you a way of escape. He's offering you a way to get free from the kingdom of hell. He's offering you a way to, have, to be forgiven of all the sins you have committed. He's offering you a future that is good. A future that knows the, the depths and heights and riches of the love of God rather than knowing the despair and hopelessness of, of, of an eternity with the devil in the hordes of hell. He's offering, God is offering you so much. But you have to go and say, God, I'm weary of this life of sin. I'm weary of it. That's all that it's been. It seems like it's never going to stop. God, can you forgive me? Can you change me? Can you give me a future? And if you're in a place that you really want the hope that Jesus gives. You really want Christ to break in your life. I guarantee you there's a God that will save you this morning. But He's not going to compromise with you. It's not going to be a halfway thing. It's not going to be adding a little Jesus to your life. If you come to Him and allow Him to do a revolution in you, a radical transformation, or He's not going to come into your life. He'll not be a little part of your life. He will be God of your life, or He won't be. And it all depends on what you do. When I was a young man strung out on drugs, I was in a park. It was noon on a Saturday, all by myself. And I can't even tell you exactly what happened. One moment I am a man totally, completely lost. The next moment, I am delivered from drugs, alcohol, smoking, swearing. The revolution was so fast, so quick, and so real. Why would I ever go back? Why? Why would I return to the, to the vomit that I was once in? this woman, her name's Janelle Guzman. She was the last survivor from 9-11, which happened in 2001, where terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center, the two towers. She was in the first tower, something like up on the 64th level. Over the intercom, the uh, announcements came, stay where you are, Everything's okay. 
It wasn't. She was, her family was from Venezuela, and they migrated to um, well, I can't remember the Indonesian country. And then as a young woman, she came to the United States and eventually got citizenship. So she's working on the 65th floor. She had felt earthquakes growing up as a child. So she wasn't super concerned over it. She thought everything was okay. Finally, they end up going into one of the rooms that had a TV and they started watching the news and they realized what was going on and they stopped listening to the uh, people, whoever was saying, stay where you are, don't rush, don't panic. And so she began with some other people running down the stairs and she grabbed hold of a woman that was her friend, her hand, and they're running down the stairs. They get to something like uh, uh, six, level 16 or 17 and there was another violent shake and their hands separated and she went one way and the other woman went another way and the building was coming down. She's the last survivor from 9-11. Last survivor, 27 hours trapped. After her, nobody was found alive. She's totally buried she doesn't know which way is up. Total darkness. She doesn't know. She doesn't know how to call for help. She doesn't know how to do anything. She's in and out of consciousness. She's pinned down. Her leg is crushed. Her head is between a couple of of of, of cement pillars. And finally, she comes to this place where she begins to pray because the evidence that I've seen is that she wasn't a believer. I don't know what she is now. But she began to pray, began to cry out to God for help. What do you do when you're under rubble and you don't know which way to reach out? You don't even know which way to go. You don't know what up or down is. You don't know where people are. You don't know where anything is. She comes to consciousness and she finally goes and pulls and, and, and her hair is all under, this, un, under the, the, the rubble and it rips some of the hair out of her head but she gets her head free and somehow her hand comes out. All of a sudden she hears this voice where a man says, I'm Paul. You're safe now. Just wait. Do you know what's so weird? They never found a Paul that was there. Never. None of the rescue people knew of a Paul that was there. They dug her out. What a picture. Absolutely trapped. You don't know which way to turn. You don't know which way to go. You are trapped in your sin. Utterly, completely hopeless in yourself. You stay there, you're going to die. And if there's any sanity left in you, if there's anything left in you, that you begin to cry out, says, God, save me. Save me. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get out of here. I'm in utter blackness. The pain is so great. I don't know. I don't know which way to turn. And you cry out and you just try whatever way you can to lift up a hand that he might reach out. And what do you do? You feel him at that moment come down and reach a hand out to you. Do you feel the reality of the pain of all the years of sin that you've been in? The darkness that has gotten Darker and darker and more, more penetrating, see? Making you feel like you're so trapped. Well, there's a hand reaching out to you, if you will but reach out to Him. You can reject it. He's given you a free will. You can say no. What's the end result going to be? Just know what the end result is. It's going to be eternal separation from God. But if you will run home, if you will reach out that hand and say, God, I am so weary of the pain. I'm so weary of the sin. Jesus, rescue me. There's a God that will rescue you this morning. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. And Lord, I'm asking for anybody here that doesn't know you. I'm asking for anybody here that's a backslider. God, the seriousness of this is more than they can understand. They are in the devil's kingdom. They are ruled by the devil and the hordes of hell. 
The misery that's in their life is of their own making and the making of other people. You didn't do it. But yet, Lord, in Your kindness and goodness, You are offering them a way of escape. You're offering them a way out. They are under the rubble of their sin and their pain and their own human history. And Lord, You're just longing for them to reach out that hand and say, Jesus, save me, save me. I'm so tired of my sin. Save me. Lord, I'm asking for some to come to salvation, Lord. And Lord, I'm also asking for some Christians that are struggling in sin and they struggled for so long and it's time they start to fight. It's time they finally say, no more am I going to be a slave. No more am I going to bow my knee to the devil and his ways. God, that something holy would rise up within them. A holy desire for purity and righteousness. God, a holy desire that would compel them to press in deeper. God, I'm asking for those that would finally rise up and say, that old life is done. You ask this in your precious name. Everybody please stand.